Hi everyone and welcome to the Parma Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. It's great to have you all here today. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, my friend Laura Parrott-Perry uh, to the podcast today. Uh, Laura is a, um, a writer, a blogger, and she's um, got an amazing blog. And she's writing a book, and she's written in all sorts of amazing places. Um, and uh, she's kind of become a good friend recently as well. So um, welcome, Laura. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, yeah, um, and Laura's got a great story to share with us today, and um, I'm looking forward to to hearing um, your story, Laura. So just um, yeah, just yeah, just kick us off. Just tell us tell us your story. Sure. Well, I think I'll start when I really began writing in earnest. Um, I had uh, gotten divorced, and my my marriage had blown up quite uh, quite unexpectedly, and got divorced. And I'd been at that point a stay at home mom for about thirteen years, and I really didn't know um, what to do with myself. My my life suddenly bore no resemblance to the one that I'd built, and um, I began. Writing sort of just in terms of super long Facebook posts and, you know, starting to tell the truth about what was going on in my life at that point, because I hadn't been for quite some time. And I had a lot of people encouraging me saying, wow, you're, you know, you're a good writer. And I had some friends who were successful writers who kept pushing me and saying, you know, when are you going to start a blog? When are you going to write a book? And and so because I, I quite simply didn't know what else to do, I started telling the truth and writing, and I started a blog, and I started a blog in October of 2014. And I didn't know what I wanted to write about, and I didn't want to get pigeonholed into one thing, so I based my blog on other people's quotes, basically. So it's called In Others' Words, and I would, I would have an inspiration quote, and then I would write whatever I was sort of feeling about that. Shortly after that, I attended Storyline Conference, mm. um, Donald Miller's, it's it's debunked now, but um, it was a conference, and uh, one of the things that he kept saying is, what will the world miss if you don't tell your story? And I couldn't shake it, you know, it's just one of those, you know, when it's, it's time for you to do something, it sort of follows you around and nips at your heels and won't leave you alone, no matter how much you try to shake it. And it didn't feel rhetorical. The question didn't feel rhetorical. The question mm. felt like I was supposed to answer it. And so while at the conference, I um, sat down at a hotel bar with three women I barely knew and told them the story that I would not been telling, which was about my sexual abuse in childhood. And I wasn't ready at that point to write about it. Um, but it began to be clear to me that that was the story I needed to tell. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was in October of 2014. It was literally three weeks after I started my blog. Cut to Thanksgiving morning, I woke up and I had a friend request from my cousin Mary, who I had not seen in 35 years. And I had, I was very taken aback. <laughs> and um, I accepted it thinking, well, you know, worst case scenario, she's a crazy person and I unfriend her and, you know, we'll be done with it. Um, 
And we got to talking and a few days later we were on the phone for three and a half hours and she said, well, I don't understand why we didn't see each other for 35 years. And I knew why we'd not seen each other in 35 years. The reason we'd not seen each other is that while my parents were going through a divorce, I told my mother that my father's father had been sexually abusing me. My father didn't believe me and we lost that side of our family. We just never saw them again. Mm. And... So as Mary, as Mary and I were talking, I was, I didn't want to say it out loud because I had just gotten her back and I didn't know what she had been told. And I was afraid to rock the boat. Um, and then Mary, who's, you know, pretty gutsy lady said, I think I know why let's talk about the elephant in the room. And so she told me she too had been abused by my grandfather. And so, um, it became very clear to me that it was time for me to write about this. You know, it felt there were too many things that were coming together. And I thought, okay, um, about a week or two weeks later, I decided to, to tell that story. So I wrote about it on the blog and had what at that time was a, a big response, given that nobody knew my blog existed. You know, it was mostly people that were already in my life and loved me that were following my blog. And so I had a lot of people respond and a lot of people say, me too, people whose stories I thought I knew, you know, say that happened to me too, or that happened to my sister or my, you know, cousin or my friend. Um, and it felt, I felt that little, you know, that little, um, hum or buzz that you get when something resonates and you can feel it, you can feel that it's resonating with people. I knew that, that this was an important conversation, but I sort of felt like that was it. You know, I had told the story. Um, about a month and a half later, I went up to visit Mary in Massachusetts and we stayed up all night and, you know, sort of shared more of our story and how, hmm. how the abuse had affected us in our lives. And there were so many things in common. And so we made the decision that the next day we were going to dance on our grandfather's grave. So, um, we got up the next morning with that intention, not, not really even as a sign of disrespect, sort of as a, we are still here, you know, despite your best efforts, we are still here. Mm. And we got in the car and drove to the little Massachusetts town where he's buried and where we were abused. And we could not, um, remember where the cemetery was. So we pulled into the police station to ask for directions and I jokingly said to Mary, um, we should go in and report him. And Mary said, well, what do you think would happen if we reported him? And I said, oh, I don't know. You know, and I, I was joking. <laughs> Mary did not take it as a joke. And so when we went in to ask for directions, Mary said, I wonder if you could humor us. Our grandfather sexually abused us 35 years ago and we want to report him. And they ushered us into a conference room. They took it very seriously. They treated us with enormous respect and mm -hmm. compassion and took our statement and um, launched an investigation. And we got a call the following day saying that they'd found another victim outside the family in one day. And so it became, I felt it was really clear that the, the, I was supposed to tell this part of the story too. You know, and so I yeah. sat down, I, in about 20 minutes, wrote a post about it, really didn't think much about it, hit publish, 
and got on a train to go back to Massachusetts. And between when I left Massachusetts and got back to Connecticut, rather, um, the post went viral. I got picked up by some people with blogs much larger than mine and reposted. And um, my tiny little blog went from having, I think, a couple of hundred hits on, you know, its biggest day to 40,000 hits the first day and 80,000 hits the next day. And it quickly became clear that this was not, it was not about Mary's and my story. This was about a hunger Right. This was about a hunger for this conversation. And so um, from that point, I began to write quite a lot about that topic. But also, Mary is a writer as well and wrote about it, too. Um, it became clear to us that we were supposed to do something with this experience. And so out of that experience, we founded our nonprofit, which is Say It's a which um, is dedicated to helping other survivors of sexual abuse reclaim their stories. So what's that? What's the nonprofit called? Say It Survivor. Right. Okay. Say It Survivor. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we basically tried to... We, we knew that we could not... Our experience was kind of lightning in a bottle. There wasn't... There's not really a way to recreate that for other people. There were too many, you know, it was a perfect storm of good things happening. Um, what we could do was distill what was so healing from that experience and then offer it in a workshop form to other survivors. And so that's what we do. Wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. Wow. Um, fantastic. So, so tell us a bit about that then. I mean, like, I mean, Practically, what sort of things do you do? Do you do with survivors? That what what kind of practical outworkings do you do to help people get healing? Sure. And um, yeah, that'd be great to hear. Yeah. So what what I have learned through this experience is whatever story it is that you are not telling, right? So it's not just about hmm. stories of sexual abuse. Whatever story you're not telling. Anywhere, If you're not telling a story anywhere, it's because you've attached shame to it. And if you've attached shame to a story and are not telling it for that reason, that story is in charge of your whole life. That story is running the board. I, I absolutely believe you either own your story or it owns you. I think it's a binary. I think those are the only two options. And so what we attempt to do in the workshop setting is one of the things that was so healing for us in our experience, the officer who um, interviewed us, Officer Paul, who is just this amazing person in our lives, um, led us through our story very methodically mm-hmm. and with a lot of compassion, but no emotional game, right? He's not part of the story. So typically, as a survivor, particularly as a survivor of sexual abuse, if you tell that story, it's genu- generally to someone who cares about you or who you're connected with in some way. Yeah. And so they have their own reaction to it. And mm-hmm. that gets really complicated, right? Either because they have a relationship with the person who is your abuser or they are so emotional on your behalf. But even even in a supportive even if someone's reacting very emotionally in a supportive way, it can 
add to the burden that you're already carrying. You know, I, before telling my story to Officer Paul, other than talking to my cousin who, you know, was in the same position as I was, I had never told my story all the way through without having to stop to comfort someone else. And that informs the way you feel about your story, right? If, if you're telling your story and you have to stop your story of harm to comfort someone else, that reinforces this lie that we get sold that our stories are unspeakable. Hmm. And so what what we to do in the workshop is to, first of all, help our participants sort of, we, we call it untangling the narrative, right? So what I, what I now understand, I feel like my, my life is, I consider what I do story work, right? So yeah. when trauma happens to children, what happens is they get a set of facts, they get dealt this set of facts, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily understand them because their understanding of the world is limited. They don't have the wisdom or the perspective that an adult would have. And so children do what human beings have always done, which is they build story around those facts to make sense of them, right? Mm -hmm. That's what human beings have done since the beginning of time, Yeah. right? Yeah. So the problem is that Sometimes the story that a child builds around those facts is as harmful as those facts. For instance, for example, mm. my grandfather, right, when I was in my abuse, told me that if I told anyone what was happening, they would be upset and they would be angry and they wouldn't believe me. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I told my mom, who did believe me, was very upset, understandably, right? Mm. Told my dad, who was very angry and didn't believe me. So their reactions were what he said they would be, mm. right? So to my mind, as a little girl, he was right about that. So mm -hmm. therefore, mm -hmm. he's right about everything. Yeah. Right. So every message that he gave me about myself, every harmful thing he did to me, where my value lay, all of those things, I accepted as fact and lived out of that story. And it didn't matter that it wasn't true. I lived as though it was true. Hmm. And, and when you do that, it be become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if someone tells you you're a liar, and I mean, my dad was like my sun and my moon. I was such a daddy's girl. So if he, if he doesn't believe me, if he thinks I'm a liar, then I'm a liar. And what do liars do? They lie. And mm. so then I was a liar, you know? Mm. And so it didn't matter that the story wasn't true to begin with. It became true. And that's what, that's what so many survivors of childhood trauma, sexual trauma in particular, because there's an added layer of shame, but just trauma in general Sometimes the story built around those facts is at least as harmful as what happened. And mm -hmm. so we try to help our participants kind of suss out, okay, so this is the fact of what happened to you, but what's the story you told yourself about that? And how has that story played out in your life? And kind of identifying those pieces because, you know, one of the things that I really believe is I think we all get born with a story written by God. Right. So I think we are born with a certain set of plot points that is true for everyone. I think we are born beloved. I think we're born enough. Mm -hmm. I think we're born whole. I think yeah. those are true things. Yeah. 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 But when you are little, 
your story, you're born, you can't tell your own story, right? So your story gets entrusted to the adults in your lives. And mm-hmm. some of those adults are worthy of that trust and some of them are not. Mm-hmm. And just like in, in fiction, the unreliable narrator, some of us as little kids get unreliable narrators in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we really, when someone will be telling a part of their story in a workshop that's so, you can just tell it's a shame-drenched piece of their story, we always try and say, oh, you know, who, who, who is that? Whose voice is that? Because that's not your voice and that's not God's voice. So mm-hmm. someone else is telling your story right now. She's always someone else telling your story. And so it's just, it's just a lot of story work in the workshops and kind of helping them. You know, it's not a writer's workshop in the sense that they're going to leave with a completed version of their story, although certainly people have gone on to do that and they've put them on our blog in a lot of cases. But mm. lots of times it's just you walk away understanding your story. Yeah, I think I, story is one of the concepts that I, I'm really passionate about. I mean, one of my favourite books of all time is um, Donald Miller's book about story, The um, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Um, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. A book about how story changed his life, you know, um, and I've done a lot of work around his story, the stuff that his story stuff, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm very and I, you know, and I coach writers, and one of the things that I that I like to do is to is kind of say, look, what's your story? Like, what's you know, um, you know, what story have you got to tell? And um, let's work on that together. You know, let's kind of unpack what that is and get it out to people because it has value because 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 our stories have value because there are stories not because of what people think of them not because of the response or not because of how many people read them they just they have value because there are stories and um right and you know as a and, you know, in terms of writing you know everyone's everyone everyone's voice has value because it's their voice because it exists um so um Oh, yeah, I'm totally with you well, right, and I think that you know what's so what I what I've been noticing lately. I've been getting a lot of questions about. Um, I think it's an interesting commentary on where our culture is that people have conflated telling your story with publishing your story and telling your story with telling your story publicly. And I don't. I think there's power in telling your story, however you choose to tell it. Right. There's certainly more than one way to tell your story and telling your story publicly isn't the right thing for everybody, certainly depending on your life circumstances. And I always think that's so interesting. And I think that that's the whole um, I was reading a piece recently about writing from a scar versus right from a wound. And I think um, I think the first person I heard talk about that would be Abel Weber. I'm not Abel Weber. I know who she is. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, she's um she uh, was talking about preaching, preaching from a scar versus preaching from a wound, which I, I understand the, the necessity to preach from a scar because you're, you know, offering insight and wisdom and you don't always have that when you're in the wound. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, telling your story, writing your story, by all means, write from a wound, but don't publish from a wound. <laughs> yes, <I think laughs> yeah, I've done true. both. I've, yeah. I've published from an open wound and that, that you know. 
as you want something out into the world, you have no control over what happens to it. You have no control over people's reaction to it. And so it behooves you to you're in a healthy place to cope with whatever the response is. Hmm. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, when, when someone says, well, I'm not ready to tell my story publicly, I would say, well, we, we're never advocating. I mean, I think it's great when people tell their stories publicly, but that's not what reclaiming story is. Reclaiming your story is finding a way to tell it somewhere. Yeah. You know, I had one woman recently tell me she told her story in tattoos. Her story yeah. is tattooed on her body that she chose to tell her story. And I was like, that's fascinating. Hmm. You know, that's fascinating. I think there's, you know, there are so many different ways to express yourself and tell your story and um, get it out. And and it's not a one size fit all for Everybody, yeah, absolutely. Telling your story can mean sitting with a therapist um, or a spiritual director or someone like that and just telling them your story. You know, that that can be enough. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, as a right, I have a private blog which I don't share with people. I have a public blog, but I don't have have a private Mm -hmm. one which I don't share with people. And that's where I just write stuff out that's just mine, you know, just for me. And some of that makes right. it into public stuff. A lot of that makes it into ideas for books and things. But um, but the reason I write that is really for me um, and just to mm-hmm. get healing, you know. Um, because Absolutely. I think writing is kind of a, a way for healing to get into our heart through our fingers. You know what I mean? Um, absolutely and frequently I don't know what I think or believe about something until I write it you know writing is how I process things writing is how I come Mm. to understand what I think and believe and know Um, I I have probably as many things in draft form on my blog as I do published and a lot of them will never see the light of day I'm not writing them for publication I'm writing them because I need to figure something out or I need to Mm tell part of my story somewhere but not necessarily for public consumption absolutely yeah absolutely yeah so how has all the all that you've experienced and all you've been through um and the journey you've been on how has that impacted your faith your you know relationship with god um mm. spirituality you know how has that kind of impacted you have profound yeah, it had a profound effect on my faith. It's interesting. Mary and I um, had very different experiences in this regard. Um, so that's always interesting when we talk about that in in workshops because it's good to be able to give both perspectives. I um, I believed deeply in God when I was little. I was raised Catholic. Um, I didn't understand most of what happened in Mass, but I felt very, very connected to God and loved God. And I remember being in mass and hearing the bells, you know, the altar boys bells and, and not understanding that, that it was the altar boys. Like I believed that was God. Um, and so when my abuse began, I prayed for it to stop. Hmm. I prayed and prayed and prayed for it to stop and it didn't. And when I told, and my dad didn't believe me, I prayed for my dad to believe and he didn't. And so for me, I always make the, you know, sort of joke that I broke up with God when I was nine years old. Um, I never stopped believing in God, but I had no faith in God. 
at all. Mm. I didn't trust God. He, in, in my perspective, looking back now, I realize he'd become another male, you mm. know, sure. father figure that was not trustworthy. Yeah. I didn't feel safe with God. And so, and I think we get, we get told sort of, my understanding was either God didn't know what was happening or God didn't care what was happening, or it was part of God's plan for me. And I was not okay with any of that. (laughs) So I built up a huge wall. I built up such a huge wall and probably at various times in my life would have said I was an atheist or an agnostic, but that was really never true. I was just really mad. I was really, really mad at God. And toward the end of my marriage, interestingly enough, my um, my mother-in-law gave me, my former mother-in-law gave me a copy of Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, wow. And as soon as I saw the word pray, I was like, I, I don't know. I like to eat. <laughs> Maybe that part will resonate with me. And she said, no, 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 it's really good. And I was, I was flying back from Massachusetts to Seattle. And I said, all right. And so I took the book and I, I read it on the plane, read the whole thing. Mm. And something in me shifted. It was someone talking about God in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about God before. And and faith was not part of my life growing up. After I got divorced, we, we didn't go to church anymore. And so I, I wasn't around a lot of conversations about faith. And um, But something about that book cracked the door open Mm. and I started being more open to hearing people talk about faith and I had um I have a best friend out in Seattle who is Christian and has the most beautiful faith I've ever seen in my life just where she she glows She, she just does and she would talk about Jesus and I would I could never quite bring myself to be mad at Jesus. Like I, I was really mad at God, you know, in my my young understanding of things. But I could never quite translate that into being mad at Jesus. And I would always feel that little tug. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when my marriage blew up, and I was just undone. I was unprepared for it. I was undone. I was drinking way too much. I was starving myself. I was just falling apart. Um, my best friend kidnapped me and dragged me to church, basically, and said, I, I don't know how to help you right now, and you're scaring me. And so she made an appointment for me to talk with her pastor, and I found myself in a pastor's office, and he was the first person that I told the whole story of what had happened in the demise of my marriage. Um and I began going to church again. He was so loving and so helpful. And, um, and, and I found myself in a church where I felt like I could exhale. I had never been in a church where I felt like I could exhale before. Um, I felt safe there. And they had a, a really beautiful divorce recovery program that I went through there. And they were, it was just such a loving place. And so it's really, it's, it's, it's been as much as the past five years have been tumultuous and painful and a lot of hard things happened. It's brought me back to my faith in such a profound way. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, 
I think I talked about this recently about how um, I think that I was I was so so angry, and I feel like God was just waiting. You know, okay, when you're ready, mm. I will help. When you're ready, I'm here, mm. and I was finally ready. And so I feel like um, it's been it's been the greatest gift I would say of the past five years is is coming back to my faith. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, that resonates so much with me, actually. I mean, a lot of, without getting into depth on my story, but there's a, there's a lot of, um, a lot of things have happened, and I've, one of my default positions when things go wrong is to blame God. Um, mm-hmm. um, because of so much, and you know, I've had some. You know, I lost a parent when I was about twenty something, um, and my parents broke up just before that, and there were problems at home, and. You know, um, and so I I blamed myself, but I also blamed God. And um, like you, I often I get on. I've always got on better with Jesus than God, as well. I get that completely. Um, Jesus is just easier to get on with because I don't know if he's like a person or something. He's you know he was a man, um, and we know what he did in his life, so we know what he's like. So um, yeah, it's always I find I always find it interesting who people actually pray to when they pray. It's always an interesting question to ask people. Who do, who do you pray to? Like, do you pray to Jesus or do you pray to God? You know, um, mm. because so much of our image of God is tied to, um, you know, male imagery in terms of because we because we don't know what God looks like or whatever, and He's a bit more of a mystery. We can we and because mm-hmm. male imagery gets attached to God a lot, it's easy to project male imagery in our own lives onto God. Uh, it's a natural thing to do, you know. Um. So um, yes, yeah, I always find that interesting. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that probably contributed to keeping that wall up. I just didn't trust men in general, and there's so much male language around God. Um, and I think it's interesting because now I I do refer to God as He, and I've had people sort of push back on that, and I say. For me, I think it's because that's a relationship I need healed. I need a father that loves me unconditionally. And so that's a relationship that I need healed. I'm bought into the patriarchy. But for me, it's a really healing thing to think of God in that way for me. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's that's, that's a really that's that's a really good thing. I think um I think I mean, I, my, I think God is kind of... I think we can call God he or she. Um, or, or, or or neither. I think he's just... Yeah. Um, it's just... I think it, it's what's easier for, for each of us. Some people I know call God she. You know, because they find it easier. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't bother me at all. I don't um, think God is actually male. <laughs> no, I don't think... Um, no, but no, I think obviously. for me that... You know, that's a place where I need that healing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely get that. You know, I think, I think that's a really healthy thing actually. That we, you know, that we need to work on our relationships with God and what works for us in terms of our relationship with God works for us. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's really, really important because we, each of our relationships with God is different. You know, because we're all different. We all have different stories, and, and God relates. We, mm-hmm. we, we, we all relate to God differently. So. Uh, we need to have grace with each other about that as well, I think. Um, yeah. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so um, so what are you working on at the moment in terms of your creative output? What's are you? Um, I think you're writing a book. Is that correct? Um, I am writing a book. Um, it's interesting. It's it's evolved. It's not the book I thought I was going to write, um, but it's it's largely a book about story, um, about the the powerful role it plays in our lives. Um, how to tell your story and also how to hold one another's stories because I think as a culture we're really terrible at that. Um, we're not great at creating safe spaces for people or being safe spaces for people to tell each other stories of harm especially. And so it's it's really about that. It's about what I've learned. So the, the times in my life when I have been the most broken, the most busted up, right? So over my abuse, over my divorce, and over my alcoholism um, are the also the places where coming out of those experiences are where I've found a way to tell my story in a really powerful way and found communities that allow for that. And so it's sort of about how to be a person who can hold someone else's story in such a way that I think so many times when, when people tell their stories, their story feels heavier after they tell it because it's mishandled. Mm -hmm. And so I think our, our role for each other needs to be that when someone tells you their story, especially their heavy story of harm, it feels lighter when they walk away. Yeah. And so it's really about that. I mean, one of the things that I've, you know, I've been, I've been getting to know, intentionally getting to know more women and hearing their stories and different perspectives than mine and why they believe certain things and people who've been through things that I haven't been through and um and actually becoming aware of the fact that I'm a white man and that kind of precludes me from certain kinds of experiences and understand perspectives and I, that I need to learn um and one of the things, especially recently, I've been talking to a lot of people about on social media and um, and in all the work that I've been doing is we really need to hear each other's stories. We need to hear the stories of those we disagree with and we need to hear the stories of those who are angry and hurting um, and not just judge them on mm. what they're saying and actually hear what they've got to say. That's the only way we get we move forward. That's the only way we can work together. It's the only way we can, you know... Um, create a better world in a sense is that we listen to each other's stories and actually say okay that's your story and i can't i'm, I'm gonna and i'm not gonna take away value from that story by saying it doesn't it's irrelevant or it doesn't matter or that or you're wrong you know that we have to hear each other's stories and right. understand and then have grace with people who maybe disagree with us because of what their story is and you know that's a really challenging thing to do but i think it's i think it's really really important I agree. I think, first of all, too often we listen to respond, yes. right? People yes. have a very hard time just listening. Mm. They're listening and planning out what they're going to say in response, or they're getting their defense, they're preparing their defense, or, mm. you know, and so they're not really taking in someone's story because they're already prepping for what's going to come out of their mouth. Um, Louis C.K., the comedian, has a great line that he says, when someone tells you you hurt them, you don't get to say that you didn't. 
And I think that's so true. I think so many times when we hear something that's either uncomfortable because we've harmed someone or something that's uncomfortable culturally or um, our privilege is challenged or, you know, something something like that. And I think it's a, a human thing to, to want to defend yourself or, or whatever. But what that does is it stops the conversation. And the person telling their story feels unheard. And it adds to the frustration and it adds to the tension. And I think... Um, you know, one of the things that one of the practices that I use when someone tells me their story is I have my hands in my lap, palms up. And I try to remember that it is not my place to grasp their story, to fight against their story, that it's just my job to be open and receive it. Mm. I don't need to do anything with their story. Other than bear witness. Bearing witness is a powerful, powerful thing. You know? Um, And I think that's where healing begins. Healing begins when people, I don't know if it's Brene Brown that says healing begins when people feel heard. Um, Mm. I think that's true. I think that people need to feel heard in order to move past a lot of things. You are listening to respond or you are listening to offer a counter argument or whatever you are you are not hearing that person you can't yeah 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 that's right and yeah i mean i know that in the past i've made that mistake you know i've been so obsessed oh as have i yeah like i've made that like i've been so obsessed with my own point of view and my own argument and like like i almost kind of like and and the weird thing is i've my passion is has actually been kind of justified in terms of like I'm saying this because I care and because I believe this is important but actually what I fail to mm-hmm. recognize is that their story actually matters and I have to actually hear what they've got to say you know um and um you know obviously things that have happened and you know I've, I've had to I made a conscious decision to talk to people I disagreed with and hear their stories because um mm-hmm. it because it would be wrong of me not to do that and um, and because things aren't as black and white as people like to make them, especially on Twitter, people like to make things black and white, you know, and this means this, this means that. If you did this, then you did, then you believe that. And it's not as simple as that, and it's never as simple as that. Um, um, because stories are no. much more complicated than that. So, Right. And I think that if you only, first of all, if you only ever listen to people that already agree with you, the conversation never gets moved forward. No progress is ever made on any front. I mean, you're, you know, um, I, I really make it a point to um, just what you were saying, to, to listen to people whose viewpoint is very radically different than mine. Um, it's not always easy, but I do. I think it's important. And I also think, you know, when I think about in terms of the book and I'm talking about the mistakes that, people make in the way they handle other people's stories. They're all mistakes I have made. <laughs> you know, I'm not calling out anyone else for anything that I personally haven't done. I can think of examples of where I've listened to defend, you know, or I've, I've, you know, rushed in so quickly with my me too, that I've cut someone else off from where they needed to go in telling their story. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, we're, we are, as a society, 
not very adept at sitting with other people's stories. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I would, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Um, thanks for uh, coming on the show, Laura. Um, um, well, I'll definitely have to have you back. Thank you when, for having me. Yeah. No, no problem. Yeah. Just such a great story. Um, so much wisdom. Um, and you know, when that book comes out, we'll definitely have you back and talk about the book and um, talk about that stuff in more detail because it's um, it's amazing. So thank you. And uh, yeah. So thank you so much. um that's great thank you laura so um yeah that's it for this week everyone and um take care and i'll speak to you next week